Hello and welcome to the podcast of Vineyard Church here in Maryville, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week, as well as our conversations episodes, which include interviews, special announcements, and in-depth teaching. You can visit vineyardchurch.us to learn more about us or to access the audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. Hey, I am so glad to, uh, to be with you guys uh, this morning. We actually visited with you guys about a year and a half ago when you were still in the, the other building. And so, like, how amazing it is that you guys are in this facility. Uh, and uh, Aaron and Sharon took us around this morning. And so, you have space. It's like, I was like, wow, you were kind of like busting at the seams when we were here uh, the last time. So congratulations, and not just congratulations to you guys, but like, thank Jesus that you're in this place um, and that you have this. Now, I want to say, um, you guys know this, but I'm just going just gonna to reaffirm it. You have amazing leaders in Aaron and Sharon. And uh, since I have, yeah. Um, and so I'm glad to kind of be joining with you guys in being uh, led by, especially Sharon, as she's our regional leader, uh, and getting to experience what a phenomenal leader she is, and so thankful for the, the friendship that we have developed uh, with Aaron and Sharon. So uh, we started a series last Sunday at our place uh, up in Kentucky uh, that we're going to be following through these weeks uh, before we get to Easter. And so I wanted to, to not because I didn't want to prepare a fresh message for you guys, but I felt like the Lord was saying, repeat what you did last week uh, down here. And so this was the first message in a series for us called Crossways. And I want to start with some scripture reading from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through uh, 20. I'm going to read verses 18 through 25, and then chapter 2, verses uh, 6 through, or verses, yeah, verses 6 through 10. Uh, Or actually, 2, 1 through 5, sorry. Uh, So, um, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 has one of my favorite verses in the whole of Scripture in it. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And in chapter 2, verse 1, and when I came to you, brothers, did I did not, did I, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Would you pray with me? 
Father, I just want to um, kind of ask that, 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 that old prayer that David prayed in the Psalms. And I just want, Father, for you to, uh, to let uh, the meditations of my heart now and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you. And not just pleasing to you, Lord, would you, would you just let them be so much more yours than they are mine uh, for these next few minutes. And I want to ask, Father that for everyone in this room, that you would open our ears to hear you and our eyes to see you and our hearts just to know you deep, more deeply this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are five million podcasts available on the Spotify app. At least that is their claim. Five million podcasts available every day on Spotify. And Spotify claims that every day they have 100 million listeners to their podcasts. Now that is a lot of people consuming a lot of information. And not only is it a lot of people consuming a lot of information, but it is a lot of people consuming a whole lot of conflicting information. So I don't use Spotify, and actually not an Apple guy either. I use a podcast app called CastBox. And so a couple of weeks ago, I sat down and, and looked through the, op- the, the opening screen of the, the CastBox app just to see what they were offering. And so in their featured section, they have a section every day where they're, they're featuring six or seven podcasts that day. And I found these two stacked right on top of each other, one called Sleep Meditation for Women, right above another podcast called Ghost Stories. This is conflicting information, right? Like how to fall asleep peacefully or keep, keep yourself awake scared. You can, you can take your pick. Then I went down to the society and culture section, and there was a, a podcast by a fellow named Ezra Klein. He's absolutely brilliant. He works for the New York Times, has a podcast where he's talking about all kinds of brainy stuff all the time. And on one of his particular episodes, he was talking about how to build a Palestinian state, whether or not that was possible in the Middle East today. But right next to his podcast was another one called the Unplanned Podcast, where these two parents in their 30s, they just get on their podcast equipment and talk about whatever comes to mind. And so on their podcast, right next to Ezra Klein, they had an episode where they, they, they wandered from talking about dental veneers to, uh, to uh, quitting drinking alcohol and to how their family recovered from RSV. It's conflicting information, a lot going on there. Then, of course, I went down to the news section and smiling, well, not smiling at me in the news section was Rachel Maddow, who's like a darling of the progressive left, right? And then right next to her, also not smiling, was Mark Levin, who's like a bulldog of the conservative right. It's conflicting information. My favorite, however, was the Dr. Mike podcast. On the Dr. Mike podcast, he had a psychiatrist on uh, who was offering a critique of this really popular uh, book called The Body Keeps the Score, which is about how trauma affects the body. And he was offering a critique of that book and saying, hey, we, just, we, we kind of overuse the word trauma these days. That psychiatrist was saying, and guys, right beneath Dr. Mike's podcast was a podcast called The Trauma Therapist. And he was talking about how we suffer a series of traumas every day that keep us stressed out. So this is a lot of conflicting information being consumed by a lot of people. And it struck me as I looked at my podcast app and compiled these, it struck me that our podcast apps 
are kind of like pantheons of information and influence. You may not be too familiar with the word pantheon. It's an old word. It's a Greek word that was used to refer to the whole collection of gods or goddesses in an ancient culture. But not only in ancient culture, uh, we have this today that the Hindu religion has a pantheon of gods and goddesses. And in a pantheon of gods, you try to worship all of them to keep them all happy, but you have a select few that you really focus on because you're especially concerned about keeping them happy and having them bless your family. And and it dawned on me that our podcasts are kind of like a pantheon, and here's why. They offer us, and by the way, not just podcasts, we could add YouTube, we could add TikTok, any place we find influencers and information, but they're like pantheons because they offer us a multitude of competing influencers who are all espousing a multitude of information to try to compel us to follow their way than the way of another influencer because the more of us they influence, the more money they make. And it's like a pantheon. Now, Paul, when he went to the city of Corinth for the first time, he found in the city of Corinth a pantheon. Not a pantheon, first and foremost, of influencers and information, but a pantheon of gods and goddesses. Like the city of Corinth back in its day, it's hard to describe what it was like. It was, it was a mover and shaker kind of city. It was like maybe a cross between Dubai and the Middle East today and Las Vegas and Nevada. It was kind of that sort of place, a lot going on in Corinth. And so when Paul walked into Corinth, he would have looked, looked up to his right left and he might have seen a shrine to the, the, to the god Apollo. He might have seen a shrine to the god Aphrodite. He might have looked up and seen a shrine to the god Poseidon. There might have been a shrine to the goddess Hera. And, and the archaeologists tell us that in the city of Corinth, they even had a god to, uh, to, to, uh, or a shrine to Medea, who was like reviled across most of the ancient Roman Empire because she murdered her two sons. But they even had a shrine to Medea so that they could worship Medea in the city of Corinth. And so he goes into Corinth and there's this pantheon of gods and goddesses everywhere. And like guys, Paul would have been highly disturbed by that, right? Like he's a Jew, he's a monotheist, doesn't care for all these gods and goddesses and shrines that they've got around. But what's amazing is that Paul in Corinth is actually not as concerned about the pantheon of gods and goddesses as he is the pantheon of influencers and information that's being peddled by people in the marketplace in that city. They had these gigantic marketplaces called agoras, and there was a really big one in Corinth. And so if you went into the marketplace in Corinth, there would be an influencer on his box on one corner peddling all of his ideas and information, kind of like a podcast. There would be another one on a, on a, on a pedestal over here talking about his ideas and wanting people to follow him, kind of like a YouTuber, and then kind of like TikTok, except they talk longer than they do on TikTok. But there's like all of these influence. And this is what Paul is incredibly concerned with. He's concerned about all of these people that when you walk through the marketplace, you're hearing all these philosophies, all these different theories, all these different teachers being like peddled by influencers and want to be influencers in the city marketplace because they want to gain a following and make money. And Paul is especially concerned about about these people because it seems that some of the Christians in the city of Corinth have sort of moved away from following Jesus to following these influencers and the information that they have been peddling in the marketplace. And so it was sort of like they started out with Jesus, and they kind of still had hold of Jesus and the way of Jesus, but they were adding all of these influencers and information on top of it as something else that they needed to do, as something else that they needed to be interested in that was actually kind of more important than Jesus. 
in the way that Paul had taught them to follow Jesus. And so Paul is incredibly concerned that they're giving up the content of Christianity, the content of the faith, for the content being put out by these influencers and and all of the information they're peddling. And I think it's really important for us as the followers of Jesus, as Christians, it's really important for us to, to face a harsh reality about our faith. Because in the Corinthian pantheon of information and influencers, and in our 21st century pantheon of information and influencers, the content of the Christian faith pales by comparison to what is being peddled out there. It's just not as persuasive. Those who preach and teach Christianity often are not as persuasive as the influencers. Our information is not the same as what they're peddling out there. And when Paul summarizes the content of Christianity for the, for the Christians in Corinth, he uses this phrase, the message of the cross. Now, we actually ought to find this a little bit shocking, because when you and I think about the content of Christianity or the message of Christianity, we are more apt to think of the word gospel, right? We talk about sharing the gospel, teaching the gospel, preaching the gospel, spreading the gospel, and, and, and we are indeed supposed to do that. But here, Paul hones in on the word the message of the cross instead of the gospel. Now, when you and I think about the gospel, we sort of often whittle the gospel down to a few simple principles or doctrines, if you will, that kind of sum it up. Many of us are familiar with how Campus Crusade for Christ did this and their four spiritual laws. If you've ever heard those, they go, if you don't even know these were, the, these were Campus Crusade's four spiritual laws, you've probably heard these. One, God loves you and created you for personal relationship with him. Number two, humans are sinful and separated from God, so we cannot experience his love. Number three, Jesus is God's only provision for sin and we can only know God through Jesus. Number four, we must receive Jesus as Savior to know God personally. Anybody kind of ever heard that? And when we hear that, we call that the gospel. Now, I want to be clear. That is all very, very true. That is all very, very true. But that is actually one way of framing the gospel. It is not the gospel itself. That's a way of framing the gospel. It is not the actual gospel. Because here's what the gospel is. The gospel is the story of Jesus. The gospel is the incarnation and birth of Jesus. The gospel is the life of Jesus full of teachings and healings and miracles. The gospel is the crucifixion and death of Jesus. The gospel is the resurrection of Jesus. And the gospel is our hope and full expectation for the second coming of Jesus, the return of Jesus, to make all things new, as we sang about just a moment ago. That is the gospel. But what's fascinating here is that when Paul summarizes the content of Christianity, he doesn't talk about all of that. He focuses in on the cross. As if the cross is somehow the part of the gospel upon which all of the other parts of the gospel hinge. He focuses on the cross as if to say, if you don't have this event, if you don't have the cross, the resurrection is meaningless. The life and the teaching and the miracles are meaningless. The incarnation and the birth are meaningless. And so Paul singles out the cross as the central event of the gospel. And he focuses on the cross as if the cross is the one event without which the other events have neither meaning or significance. I have back at our place in Wilmore, not our house, but at our church, 
I have a great office. It's up on the third floor of the building. I've got four windows. I look out over the entire Asbury Seminary campus and can see across the way to Asbury University. I can actually see Hughes Auditorium where the outpouring broke out and happened, where most of the action happened during that time. But up in my office, I have a number of crosses. I have, I have one cross hanging in my office on the wall. It's not gold, but it's golden. And a fellow at my church, a dear friend of mine named Cecil, is kind of a mechanic to everybody in our church. He's a great mechanic. But he gave me this golden cross, and it's got four or five scenes from the life of Jesus displayed in it. And so when I look at that cross, I know the event I'm supposed to recall. But the first time I look at that cross, do you know what I think of? I think of Cecil. Who gave it to me? Not the event it's supposed to draw my mind to. I have a, a, another cross uh, in my office that, uh, that uh, is made of large spikes, and it's got like a barbed wire crown of thorns around it. Like that cross is obviously intended to draw me to a particular event, right? But whenever I look at it, I think about the two sisters in my church who gave it to me. And I have a, an old rustic wooden cross sitting in one of my windows, and it's the first thing I see when I open the door to my office in the morning. And I know what event it is supposed to make me think about, but as soon as I see it, I think about my dad who made it for me. And you and I, like, we are surrounded by so many crosses. They're on t-shirts, necklaces, earrings, church buildings, signs, billboards. We are surrounded by so many crosses and empty crosses that they don't necessarily make us think immediately of the central event of the life of Jesus or the central event of the gospel. Uh, but in the first century, in the first century, when you saw a cross, you thought immediately of crucifixion. Nobody, nobody wore a cross around their neck. Nobody wore a cross on a t-shirt. Nobody put crosses on top of buildings. In fact, if you had done any of that and they had had insane asylums, that's where they would have put you. Because if you saw a cross back in the first century, that cross was either getting ready to have a body hanging on it, had a body hanging on it, or had just had a body hanging on it. And so when Paul says to the Corinthians, when he says the message of the cross they didn't think about somebody who had just given them an ornament to wear or something to hang on a wall. They thought immediately about these two phrases that Paul uses in this passage in 1 Corinthians 1. They thought immediately of Jesus Christ, and not just Jesus, alive and well, but they thought immediately of Christ crucified, or as Paul will say it later, of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The central content of the Christian faith is the crucifixion of Jesus. It is the central content, his agonizing death as a convicted criminal of the worst sort way back in the first century. That's the central content of our faith. It's the, it's the reason we're here this morning. And guys, that kind of content wasn't the kind of content with which an influencer could influence people. It wasn't the kind of information that an influencer wanted to take into the marketplace and spout off to people. And, and, and we really shouldn't be surprised by this. I mean, it's not a surprise to me, and I don't think it should be a surprise to any of us, that people are more drawn to Dr. Mike talking about trauma and the body keeps the score than they are the agonizing death of a convicted criminal 2,000 years ago. 
It really shouldn't be a surprise to us in this politically polarized age that people are more interested in the political punditry of Rachel Maddow and Mark Levin than they are a crucified, convicted criminal who died on a, a convicted criminal who died on a cross way back in the first century. It's no shock to us that people would actually rather listen to two young parents talk at randomly about the events of their daily lives than to hear us talk about a message of a convicted criminal who died on a cross way back in the first century. And actually, I want to suggest that it may be an understatement. It may be an understatement to say that the, the message of Christianity or the message of the cross pales in comparison to the influencers and information of our day, because Paul takes it a step further. Paul doesn't just say it pales in comparison. Paul calls the message of the cross foolishness or folly, depending on which translation of the Bible you read. Here's how he puts it. For the message of the cross is foolishness. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. It doesn't just pale in comparison, Paul says. The cross strikes people as utter nonsense, total foolishness. Now, just as it can be difficult for us to kind of capture in the 21st century how scandalous it was to die on a cross back in the first century, it's also difficult for us to kind of grasp hold of the foolishness of the statements, Christ crucified or Jesus Christ and Him crucified. They don't strike us as so odd. But man, way back in the first century to say Christ crucified or Jesus Christ crucified was an utter oddity. It was the epitome of folly or foolishness. So the word Christ in English comes from the Greek word Christos. And in Greek, it meant a person or an object who was anointed or slathered up with something. So on one hand, absolutely true, on one hand in the first century, if you spoke Greek and you put butter on a bread, you said your bread was anointed. If you took animal fat or a, you know, a, pan of, pan, or a can of Pam spray and sprayed your pan before you put something in it, you said the pan was anointed because it had had something put on it. And so it had kind of this basic daily common sense meaning, but it also had this religious meaning in the first century. And in the religious sense, whenever you anointed something, whenever you put oil or a substance on it, you were attempting to confer upon that person or that object some of the qualities of a god or a goddess. So like the most famous story of this in, in ancient Greek mythology is probably the story of Thetis and her son Achilles. And so when Achilles was born, Thetis wanted her son to have immortality. So she grabs him by the heel, and she dips him in a vat of ambrosia oil, and she pulls him up. Now, there's only one problem with this. His heel didn't get anointed with the oil because she had hold of it. And she didn't think to turn him up the other way and put the heel in. And so if you know the story of Achilles, someone knowing that he was not immortal in the heel of his foot shot an arrow through his foot and killed him. Because that part of his body had not had the immortality of the gods conferred upon it. And all of that to say that, that, that you couldn't talk about a Christ who was crucified. You couldn't talk about an anointed one who was crucified. 
An anointed one couldn't be crucified because he couldn't die because he had, he had, been, had the immortality of the gods or the goddesses conferred upon him. There's one New Testament scholar, his name was Gordon Fee, he's now gone on to be with Jesus. But he says, the phrase Christ crucified in the first century sounds like the phrase fried ice does in the 20th century for him, the 21st century. I mean, you guys know you like sweet tea down here. We like sweet tea in central Kentucky. Now, if somebody came up to you and said, I have a product called fried ice, and I would like you to buy some of it because it is going to make your sweet tea better than your sweet tea has ever been, you would think that was a fool peddling a foolish idea because there's no such thing as fried ice. And that's exactly what people would have thought of the phrase Christ crucified in the first century. That's foolishness spoken by fools. It's utter nonsense. You just can't have that. And that really raises an important question. Why did anybody in the first century do this? Why did anybody in the first century do Christianity? Why has anybody ever since done the Jesus thing? Why have people for 2,000 years now followed in the way of Jesus when it's utter nonsense? It's utter foolishness by cultural standards and standards of reason and standards of logic. How does this work? I mentioned the town I'm in has Asbury Seminary in it, so we have like tons of smart people floating around. Some of them think they're smarter than they are, but we have tons of smart people floating around. And we have in our town right now a guy named Craig Keener, and he's a member of our church. And Craig, this may not mean anything in Maryville, Tennessee, but like in Wilmore, this is a huge big deal because of the seminary. He is like one of probably the second most preeminent popular New Testament scholar in the world right now. The guy is absolutely brilliant, totally socially awkward, but absolutely brilliant. Those two things usually, and he would not mind my telling you that, those two things usually come together. And Craig, no kidding, Craig by the age of 10 was studying Plato and the Greek philosophers. That's just the kind of guy he is. At the age of 10, he started studying Greek mythology. At the age of 10, he started studying ancient Greco-Roman history. So that by the time he arrived in high school, having grown up in a secular family where he had studied Plato and the Greek philosophers and Greek mythology and Greco-Roman history... Craig says that he had a sense that there was a spiritual realm, but he thought that Christianity was absolutely the least plausible way of seeking any type of spirituality. He just dispensed with Christianity as utter foolishness. Until one day when he was in high school, smarter than everybody else in high school, right? Craig once told me that his goal before he became a Christian was to take over the world, which I believe would have been possible. And um, one day he was walking home from high school when he was accosted by two really, really fundamentalist conservative Christians in suits and ties. And they told Craig about Jesus, and he had heard this before, and Craig, being the kind of guy he was at that point in time, decided to debate with these guys for about 40, he debated with him, he said, for about 45 minutes. And he comes to the end of telling this story, and he says, it dawned on me they really didn't know anything. But in their mind, they knew that Jesus died and Jesus was raised, and that's how a person was saved. It's like they didn't know anything else, but they knew that, and they wouldn't give up on it. And Craig felt like he had won the debate with these guys. He said, but when I was walking home, I I actually couldn't feel like really good that I had trounced these guys in this debate, because he says, what happened as I was walking home after this encounter, and this is a quote, I, I felt a presence that wouldn't leave me alone. 
And he says he got home. I walked, or walks the rest of the way home. I, I, got, I walked home trembling. I was just overwhelmed with the presence of God. It was with me in the room when I got home, and it was so strong, I was like, okay, God, I don't understand how Jesus died for me and rose from the dead, how that can possibly make me right with you, but if that's what you're telling me, I believe it right now. And Paul, when he's writing in 1 Corinthians, he explains why, he explains what happened to Craig. Paul explains what happened to himself when he became a Christian. He explains really what's happened to every one of us in this room when we became a follower of Jesus. He puts it this way. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. To those whom God has called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Listen, guys, for reasons that we can't know on this side of the second coming of Jesus and reasons that we may not know on the other side of the return of Jesus, there are some of us who, when we hear the message of the cross... We are so laden in the presence of the Holy Spirit in the hearing of that message that we don't perceive weakness and foolishness in the cross. For some reason, we might call it grace, we perceive in the cross the wisdom and power of God to save us from sin and death. For some reason, we can't figure out. We hear the message in the presence of the Holy Spirit and we see the cross for what it really is. The wisdom and power of God to save. And so since it is in the cross of Jesus that we experience the power and wisdom of God, we make our home at the place where Jesus died. We live where Jesus died. We live at the cross. There's one theologian, old theologian, who said it this way, a person stands only as a follower of Jesus as long as he stands under the shadow of the cross. As the followers of Jesus, we live where Jesus died. And when Paul was recalling his visit to the Corinthians in, that, in, in the letter, he says, this is one of my favorite verses, he says this to them, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is Paul's way of saying, look, when I came to Corinth, I might have made my home with any of the influencers and their information in the marketplace. I could have set myself at the feet of this influencer. I could have set myself at the feet of this influencer, the feet of that influencer here, there. I could have, could have made a home at the feet of any of the influencers. But when I came to you, I decided the only place I was making my home was at the place where Jesus died. And Paul said, I am living. I will live where Jesus died. That is the influence on my life. That is the information that drives my life. And that's where I'm going to live. And this doesn't mean that Paul was anti-intellectual. This doesn't mean that Paul was against learning new things. That's a really bad habit of some Christians, to be just totally anti-intellectual and against learning new things. 
For example, one of the great areas of study of Paul's day was called rhetoric. This was simply studying how you give a speech, how you structure information to influence people. And we know that Paul was really good at this because there's rhetoric all over his letters. He's using this stuff in every letter he wrote, including what he writes here about the foolishness of the cross, rhetoric all, all over the place there. So we know that Paul was not opposed to learning information, but when Paul learned new information, Paul's primary question was not how do I add this to the gospel of Jesus or the message of the cross to get more, but I'm only going to make use of this information so long as it serves the message of the cross and helps me live where Jesus died. So that's how he was approaching the influencers and all their information. If it will help me understand the message of the cross, if it will help me sort of build out my home where Jesus died, then I'll use that information. If not, I'm laying that information aside. And so I want to just put that picture of all those podcasts back up again. Because I want to give you just a few minutes this morning to um, to reflect... I don't listen to some of these podcasts. I obviously don't listen to Sleep Meditation for Women. Um, I don't, I've listened to some of the others. I don't, don't do Rachel Maddow and Mark Levin, but I think it's important for us to ask ourselves a question. Where else might we be living besides the place where Jesus died? Where are we camping out that actually pulls us away from this event that is for us the wisdom and power of God. So I just want to give, give you like maybe a minute just to reflect on that, and then I'll pray real quick. So, Father, just as we begin a moment of reflection, just ask for your Holy Spirit to come and guide us.